There's a niche uh, fantasy series some of you may not know about called, um, I think it's called like Master of the Circles or Lord of the Rings, that's the one. <laughs> Lord of the Rings was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, a Catholic author who some call the father of modern day fantasy. Now I'm going to spoil some things here. So the book came out in 1949. He finished the series in 1949. It's given you plenty of time to read the book or watch the movies, so if you don't want to hear these spoilers, I suggest you plug your ears. The basic synopsis is a general idea of good versus evil. Being a Catholic author, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, injected a lot of Catholic themes, a lot of this reality of light and darkness in our world, and he used these themes to really flesh out and build up this story, this world that he had created. The story follows this great evil. Sauron, this uh, evil that can be compared with the evil that we experience in faith, that of the satanic evil, the devil. We have this great evil and this small hope for good. We have this thing that's called the ring of power that controls all these other rings that basically can control the world. And it falls into the hands of an unlikely protagonist, uh, a halfling, a fantasy race of small stature, a humanoid, who aren't seen for their battle capabilities or their bravery or their courage. But a small halfling named Frodo goes on a quest to take this ring to where it was created and have it destroyed in this evil mountain that's full of lava. It's very scary, very hellish imagery, if you will. And on his way, he comes into contact with another halfling who has been twisted by the, the ring that he is trying to destroy, this, this halfling named Gollum. And he's become disfigured and ghoulish looking. Um, but as they're traveling together, Gollum starts to warm up to this idea of maybe turning away from that addiction, that, that possession he's uh, been under because of this ring. But eventually they get to this mountain, and Frodo, the main character, is overcome by temptation. Temptation of this ring, overpowered by the power, the seduction of this ring, and he puts it on. And he almost walks away from this great task. He almost seals that doom. What happens is Gollum, <laughs> empowered even more by this temptation, jumps on Frodo and actually bites off his finger and steals the ring. And what ends up happening is Frodo, out of anger or jealousy or whatever, pushes Gollum into the lava, into the, the depths of this mountain, where he burns up along with the ring. Now the reason I spoil Lord of the Rings for you, and the reason I share this image is because it relates directly with the image our Lord presents us with in sin, the reality of sin in our lives, the reality of temptation, and the struggle and trappings of sin as well. That J.R.R. Tolkien didn't directly say this, but there was an analogy for, an allegory for, for sin in the ring, this temptation. It's seductive. Sin gives us false promises, and when we sin, when we give into a lifestyle of sin, we become poisoned. Poisoned and and it becomes difficult for us to make judgments, to live healthily, and to live ultimately for that de destination we were created for, for heaven, for salvation. But it's safe to say that sin affects us, and it affects others. That evil entered into the world, death entered into the world through sin, this reality of sin, and it persists even today. That we ask, why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people in this world? It's because of this reality of sin. And it's easy to point fingers to say, I'm not as bad as that person. 
Why don't do that person does? Or it's not my fault. But it's hard to accept the reality that we are responsible for nobody else but ourselves. And for those who we have authority over. That we are responsible for the choices we make. We are responsible for those choices of whether I do good or or if I do evil. And our Lord presents this to his disciples today, presents it to us in the scripture today, when we hear him speak very, very matter-of-fact and also very sternly about this reality of sin. Our gospel passage starts out with the disciples coming forward and saying, hey, Jesus, there's these people casting out demons in your name. Um, and they're imitating us. They don't say, they're imitating you, Lord. They say us. And there's this prideful welling up within these disciples. That they have taken on this offense, not for our Lord's sake, but for theirs, as we hear in the first reading as well. And our Lord responds to this by really, again, redirecting them to that reality of, okay, you are responsible for your actions. That if they're doing that in my name, they can't be against me. And if they're casting out demons, why are you complaining? You have a spirit of jealousy, of envy within you. Then he goes on to explain this, this responsibility of our actions, our choices, especially as disciples of Christ. First, we have the social effects of our sin. And this goes for parents, for leaders in the church, anyone, like I said, with authority over others, that we have this responsibility of how our sin can affect other people, how it can lead others away from Christ, how it can lead others and scandalize others. That we hear Jesus say, whoever causes these little ones to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were put around his neck and he were thrown into the ocean, into the sea. Now, I don't know if you know what a millstone's like. You have these smaller uh, mortar and pedestals to grind up things, herbs and stuff. But a, a millstone, a great millstone was so big, it was used, obviously, in mill houses and in places where they were basically churning up uh, wheat to grind it down. Huge. It's enormous. It's so big that to just move it, you would need a donkey. The Lord is saying, it is better for you to tie one of these around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to lead a little one into sin to scandalize a little one. And our Lord is speaking about children in a very literal way, but also uh, all of us, that we are all called to be childlike, all called to be little ones in faith. And if we lead someone away from the Lord, if we lead someone to sin, or we put obstacles in their way that lead them to sin, then it is better for us to have thrown ourselves into the ocean with a millstone tied around our neck. This is a serious matter. To think, Jesus, Jesus, you're saying this to me. You're telling this to me. That it's better that this happen than if it's not a big deal. Or my sins don't affect other people. Well, we see how sin affects other people. It scandalizes. That word scandalize means to put an obstacle in the way of someone. We're putting obstacles in the way of someone's faith. We're taking away that childlike wonder for faith. Sometimes we see this in the family. That it's a, it's a serious business being a parent. That children look up to their parents, to their fathers and their mothers, to be those examples for them. And when they are scandalized, that puts that obstacle in the way of them truly being led to Christ. That's not to say that once our children are grown up and they leave, they don't make their own decisions. But as they are under our care, as parents, that it's our duty to look after them and to be that example. To not scandalize and to not be one to lead them away from our Lord. 
This is true in the church as well, especially we've seen in the scandals of our church with bishops and priests, those who have betrayed their positions of power, those who have betrayed the trust of their flock, who have scandalized again and taken away that childlike understanding and wonder of the faith. So we have this social effect of our sin, that our sin isn't only contained within ourselves, but it affects others as well. That it's not enough to say, well, I'll just be a sinner and they'll be fine. No, we're called to reflect the gospel. We're called to live virtuously. We have to be better. We're called to so much more, something so much more incredible. In the same way as how we can affect others, though, we affect ourselves, that we can be our own worst enemies, that we can affect ourselves as the little ones, that we can scandalize and put things in our own way. And the Lord, again, uses this very graphic imagery. He says it's better to cut off your arm, your foot, or to pluck out your eyeballs than it is to enter into Gehenna intact. Now, to put this in context, Gehenna was a ravine uh, near uh, the southeast uh, edge of Jerusalem. And it was where uh, idolatrous Israelites sacrificed their children to the pagan god Moloch. So it was already known as a place of great evil, a place of desolation and terror. Eventually, it was desecrated by the Israelites and then refurbished as a dump place, a place to dump things. Typically, carcasses were dumped there, and they would burn trash there. So if you were walking by uh, in, the, in the height of this as a, a garbage dump, you would be walking by maggot-eaten corpses, some from animals, perhaps some from human beings who had been stoned or executed by uh, the Romans. And you'd be seeing these burning trash piles. And what is our Lord speaking of here? He uses a re- very real image so that the Israelites can understand what he's speaking with and what gravity he's speaking of. But what is he talking about? He's talking about each e double hockey sticks. He's talking about hell. Jesus is talking about hell. And it's hard to hear. It's hard to talk about hell because it's frightening. The existence of hell. And we acknowledge this existence of hell. Not as something the Lord uses as a punishment to throw us in and say, you did a bad job, but it's something that we choose. It's a choice. That we choose to maintain those parts of our bodies metaphorically, those aspects of our lives, those obstacles that draw us into sin. That we choose to sin, we choose that separation from our Lord. That there is this image of, of this eternal fire, this, this, this terrible pain, but ultimately what hell is is that eternal separation from our Lord. That it goes against what we are made to be, our very creation. That we are made for heaven. That we are made for that final destination to be reunited with our Lord. And hell is that immense separation. So, this seems a little depressing. It seems a little grave. But our Lord is telling us as a way to prepare. To be honest, that we are called to be soldiers for Christ. And Christ's army <laughs> isn't a shining army of, of soldiers in nice armor. Polished perfectly with all their limbs and eyeballs. No, <laughs> Christ's army is beaten, mangled, crippled, that we receive battle wounds in this life and this pilgrimage on this earth, that sometimes we are called to cut off our arms, not literally, or to remove our eyeballs, to remove those things that uh, can cause us harm for the sake of eternal life. So I think it's worth reflecting on today how we can be resolute 
in our desire to purge sin from our lives and to live virtuously. The first thing we can do is uh, take our Lord's advice, to cut it off. Again, I don't want, I don't want to see anybody with missing arms and legs next week who had them before. But to, to cut off those things in our lives that cause us to sin. A practical example of this could be if I struggle with gossip or, or uncharity on the internet because of social media, close down my accounts. Close down my Twitter, my Facebook, my TikTok, whatever it is. It's like it's not worth it. There may be good here. It's not bad in and of itself, but it causes me to sin, so i got to cut it off. Cold turkey, get it rid of it. And that way we look to see what things in my life are leading me to sin. And what ways, what things can I replace that with that bring me into a deeper relationship with Christ, that help me look more towards that ultimate end, that even as I must, might suffer the loss of this thing, I look forward to that healing, that completeness in entering into the kingdom of God and being restored in my salvation. The next thing is to go to confession. Uh, if I am in the state of grave sin, it's similar to being poisoned or being wounded. And over time, that poison, that wound gets worse and worse becomes a burden, it becomes unhealthy. And the only thing we can really do in that case, and fortunately we've been given this great gift of confession, is to go to reconciliation and ask for forgiveness, to receive the Lord's mercy and his love, and to be healed by the divine physician. And finally, when we find ourselves in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of some kind of habitual sin, to invite the help of Jesus, of Mary, and of the saints or even our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are not alone in this pilgrimage. We are not alone in battling temptation, sin, or the darkness and frustration, the difficulties that we experience in this world, that we're called to call upon even the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, to be empowered by our Lord, and to look to each other as uh, fellow Christians, fellow pilgrims on this struggle, on this pilgrimage. So brothers and sisters, I, I encourage us to really reflect on this, to reflect on our struggles of sin, to be honest about it, to also reflect on what is promised to us, to be encouraged in hope, not in fear, but in hope, ultimately, of being united with our Lord. Amen.